So do you like getting something extra for free? Yeah, sure. Good thing, right? Well, we are a full-service church, so you are going to get something extra for free today. All right? So, so what is it that you're going to get for free? Well, for free, we are going to save you from embarrassment. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to give you the free gift of being saved from embarrassment. At the very least, we hope to rescue you from a moment where you might get caught up with what someone has called the insufferable smarty pants club. So how could we help you avoid the insufferable smarty pants club? Well, here's how we're going to do it. When do you use who? And when do you use whom? When do you use who? And when do you use whom? Yeah, inquiring minds want to know, right? Well, got a little trick I came across this week. It's kind of fun. If you can replace the word with he or she, use who. If you can replace the word with him or her, use whom. All right, he, she, who, him, her, whom. All right, let's just, let's just take this thing for a spin here. He ate my cheesecake. All right, he ate my cheesecake, so I could say who ate my cheesecake. That works. All right, now let's do it the other way. Him ate my cheesecake. Unless you're Tarzan or Phil Hartman's Frankenstein, that's just not going to work. It's just a phrase that really doesn't go with us because you wouldn't say, whom ate my cheesecake? It's just not good grammar. All right, let's try another one. I should talk to she about baking apple pie. Well, that didn't sound right. That didn't track. So therefore, we wouldn't say, who should I talk to about baking apple pie? That kind of sounded right, right? I mean, that, that kind of sounds like the, the way we should talk. In fact, probably most of us talk that way all the time. But according to the rule, you might get a fine from the insufferable smarty pants club if you say it in that particular way. So let's try to go the, the right way. I should talk to her about baking apple pie. Whom should I talk to about baking apple pie? Now look, at the end of the day, there's no grammar fine on that one. But I mean, really, how often are we really going to say whom? You know, it's just, it's a little awkward. You know, it's, it's a little out of place. And, and most of us probably don't use it during our normal days. I mean, how many people are really going to say, I do not know with whom I will share my bacon? I mean, good grammar or bad grammar, that's just crazy talk, Right? Why in the world would you ever do that? No, no. You do not share bacon with him or her or he or she. You should not, could not share bacon at all, you see. You don't do that. So cheesecake, apple pie, bacon, good grammar, and Dr. Seuss aside, I do have an important pronoun driving question to ask you, and it's this, and I'm probably going to use the wrong grammar. Who are you trusting who is it that you are trusting for the big things and small things in life? When your marriage is rocky, who are you trusting? When your marriage maybe never gets out of neutral, who are you trusting? When your kids are rebellious, when your kids just don't care. When things at, at school are overwhelming. When the demands at work are impossible. When the news media stirs you to fear over people's actions, when social media 
stirs you to fear over people's opinions. When your health falls apart or when your health starts to fade, who are you trusting? Who is it that you are really hanging on to and clinging to? The reality is the answer to that question defines your life. It defines your life today and tomorrow, next week, next year, and forever. So that sounds like a pronoun that we probably want to get right. King David, king, shepherd boy, warrior, is going to help our souls think deeply about the grammar that we use in our souls. Listen to Psalm 23, verse 4. David writes, for you are with me. Now, those words are strategically connected to the phrase right before it that we looked at last Sunday. So here's what they sound like together. I fear no evil, for you are with me. I will not be afraid of evil, David says. I mean, that's that's a pretty big statement, right? I mean, just think back to this week, just, just one thing you've seen in the news that was evil. There's a lot of evil stuff going on. There's things happening that would drive us to fear drive us to to panic or to anxiety. These are evil days. These are dangerous days. But think about this. When you were 13 years old, did you ever have to worry about being attacked by a lion or a bear because you were sleeping outside in the middle of the night in a field for weeks at a time? Ever have to worry about that when you were 13? I would love if one of you raised your hand like the one person. That'd be great. What about this? Have you ever had a family member or the father of your best friend try to assassinate you? Anybody happened that this week? That David had a life like that. That's what happened. Some of the things that happened in David's life. Evil and danger found him. They surrounded him. They impacted his life. But in the midst of evil, in the midst of danger, in the midst of his discouragement, David was fighting. And he was fighting to say, I'm not going to be afraid of this evil. And why would he say that? Well, because somebody was with him. Somebody was next to him. Somebody was around him. Somebody was behind him and and before him and above him. And how do we know that? Well, he tells us. He says what? You are with me. Who is this you? Well, it's the Lord. It's the one known as the great I am, the creator who has declared that out of nothing he created the world and all that is in it. Now, there's a lot of people who don't believe in that creator. They don't believe in that great I am. Eight years ago, BBC News put out an article. The title of the article was Reasons People Choose Atheism. This is one of the reasons. For most of human history, God was the best explanation for the existence and nature of the physical universe. But during the last few centuries, scientists have developed solutions that are much more logical, more consistent, and better supported by evidence. Atheists say that these explain the world so much better than the existence of God. They also say that far from God being a good explanation for the world, it's God that now requires explaining. Sometime during the 1940s, maybe the early 50s, uh, my grandmother heard that one day 
that people were going to be able, when they were talking to people on the phone, to see their faces. My mom said my grandmother chuckled went, well, that'll never happen. How many of you parents and grandparents FaceTimed or Skyped with your kids this week, right? Poor granny, she, she missed it. So does that make my grandmother dumb and ignorant because she refused to accept the, the possibility of future technology? No, it doesn't. She died when I was still just a little boy, but from what I know of my grandmother, she was extremely intelligent. She faithfully served her family with honor and dignity. She faithfully served her community for 39 years as the postmaster, and she was a faithful servant at her church. How faithful. I asked my mom, so, hey, what did, I call her mom and pat. I said, what did mom and pat do, you know, at church? <laughs> this is what my mom sent me back. This is what my mom texted me. She taught the only adult Sunday school class. She was president of the Women's Missionary Union. She mowed the grass at the church with a push mower. She was on the rotation of volunteer church janitors. She covered for the people who forgot their rotation week. She made sure flowers were in the church every Sunday. She visited the sick. She took meals to families who had lost a loved one. She tithed, and when the visiting preachers came, they always stayed at my grandmother's house. I'll give her a pass on missing the face on the phone thing, you know? I mean, she, she was a hard, hard, faithful servant. David wrote Psalm 23 about 3,000 years ago. Over the last 3,000 years, I think we can all agree that the the improvements of science and technology are simply amazing. But do those advances, do those improvements, does that mean that the folks back then were less logical, less consistent, less better than us? Are the folks back then, are they inferior to us because they didn't have access to the things we have access to? Let me see if I can ask it another way. Are, are you willing to call your great-grandparents inferior because they don't have access to modern science? What if they believed in Jesus? Are you willing to say that they're inferior or maybe that they just don't understand because they don't have access to what we have access to? Are our ancestors simple-minded and weak because they just believed in the best explanation that was out there at the time, but now we are smarter and wiser? I'm not trying to make an argument for the existence of God by playing on the emotions of your family tree. I'm simply saying this, that for at least the last 6,000 years, there have been some rational, reasonable, intelligent, highly educated men and women who have believed and do believe that the God of the Bible is the creator and owner and sustainer of the universe, and he has done more than enough to explain himself to humanity. Romans 1 verse 20 says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says this, God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. And David says that God who has spoken to all of the prophets over all the ages in many portions in many ways, he's my God and he's with me. The Holy One of Israel, the only one who was and is and is to come, David says that God, he is with me. 
Psalm 23 begins with these very four simple words. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. See, the reason David was not going to be afraid of evil is because he knew when evil came that he was not alone. He knew evil was coming. He knew he wouldn't be protected from evil, but he knew when evil came, he was not going to be alone. One pastor put it this way, the presence of the shepherd was what eliminated David's fear. God was with him. But what does that mean? What does it mean that God was with him? I mean, we can't hug God physically when he does something good for us. We, We can't give him a fist bump when he does something cool in our lives. We can't hold his hand when things get scary. We can't physically stand behind him when the evil things come. So so what does David mean? How is it that that God's with us? John Piper, I think, gives a helpful thought to this. God's presence as we experience him is the heightening of his reality in our lives, either for good, if we're in his grace, or for ill, if we're under his wrath. That's why David changes pronouns. See, all the way up until this verse, he's been saying he. He's talking about, talking about God and saying he. And then all of a sudden, he starts talking about fear. He starts talking about death. He starts talking about evil. And when he uses those words, he switches pronouns. And he says, you. My God, he is with me. This is you. This is personal. See, for David, God wasn't a fairy tale. He wasn't a myth. He wasn't a legend. No, David didn't have a, a burning bush, and, and he didn't have you know, stone tablets with commandments that had been etched on them with the hand of God himself. He didn't have those things, but he knew God was real. He didn't have a, a fancy God particle machine to help him compare and analyze the reality of life, but he knew God was real, and he knew God was with him. This mighty military leader, this king of a nation of many people, he was not believing the best explanation that was available at the time. He was believing the best explanation, period. David was not a fool. He believed in the reality of God. And day after day, the reality of God was being heightened in his life. More and more, the reality of God was being heightened in his life. So how does that happen for you, for me? How does the reality of God get get heightened in our lives? In his letter in the New Testament, this is what James said, James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I'm pretty sure I've shared the story with you before about the older couple that's cruising down the road back in the day when, when cars had those huge bench seats across the front. And the wife was noticing that it seemed like everybody they were riding by, the, the woman was snuggled up close to her guy. She said, honey, why don't we sit like that anymore? And the husband, just cruising along, looked straight ahead. He said, you know what? It wasn't me that moved. Oh, come on, that's not even an after-lunch thing. You can get that, right? See, here's what happens. We get stressed. We get frustrated. We get angry. 
we get scared, we get confused, we get depressed, we get discouraged. And all of a sudden, we start questioning God. God, where are you? God, why aren't you helping? God, why aren't things working out? But here's the thing. God isn't the one who moves. He doesn't alienate himself from us. See, we tend to alienate ourselves from him. We tend to to wander away from him. So how do we draw near to God? Listen to the rest of what Hebrews 1 said that we read just a few minutes ago. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The most vibrant way that God has explained himself to humanity is through his Son, Jesus. Emmanuel is not just a Christmas word. Emmanuel is an everyday word. Emmanuel, God is with us. Jesus is with us. Jesus is the presence of God. If we're looking for what it means to be with God, we look at Jesus. See, the the ongoing heightening of the reality of God in David's life, it happened a long time before Jesus was born. So that means when David says, you are with me, his experience of the reality of God is different than mine. Because when I say, you are with me, Lord, I'm not basing it solely on the wonder and beauty of creation. I'm not basing it solely on the the testimony and the witness of of rational, reasonable men and women who have believed in Jesus all these years throughout history. I'm not basing it solely on the faithful accuracy of accounts of ancient manuscripts. No, when I say, Lord, you are with me, I am also basing it on the historical birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, of Nazareth, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. See, when we say God is with us, we directly connect ourselves to Jesus. I was reading a story this week about a guy who came to faith in Christ, and he was explaining how he came to saving faith, and and he talked about the evidence of Jesus in the Bible. His name is Mike Hayes. This is what he said. I figured even if they were wrong in 90% of what they were teaching, I still had to deal fairly with the other 10%. Having read the New Testament several times by then, I knew that even if I tore out nine of every 10 pages, I was still being confronted with a deep and powerful challenge to my agnosticism. And then he says this, I tried very hard to explain it all and explain it all away, but felt terribly dishonest as I did so. See, the notion from many that it is terribly dishonest today to believe in God in light of the revelations of modern science. It's it's dishonest, so to speak, to believe in God when we have so much evidence from science that explains things so much better than God. But here's what the gospel says to your soul. The gospel says it is terribly dishonest for you to casually reject casually ignore, casually explain away the things that are true about Jesus. That's true dishonesty. Listen to the rest of how Hebrews 1 talks about Jesus. 
And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When I'm in a car and and this program comes on the radio, I love listening to NPR's Science Friday uh, with Ira Flato. I mean, I've heard some fascinating, just really interesting things about, about science when I've been able to hear that show. But here's the thing. Of all the interesting and cool things that I've heard on Science Friday, I've never heard something that stirs in my heart and my mind and my soul this unbelievable confidence that there is absolutely, perfectly, completely, consistently something in science that is holding everything together all the time. But in Jesus Christ, we have a promise that he is completely and perfectly and consistently always absolutely holding all things together by the word of his power. That's amazing. But how do we know that promise is real? How do we know we should believe in that promise? What does that promise have to do with God being your shepherd? And what does that promise have to do with God being with you. D.A. Carson says this, it is not uncommon to be told that worship leads us into the presence of God or that worship takes us from the outer court into the inner court or the like. And there is a way of reading those statements sympathetically, but taken at face value, they are simply untrue. What brings us into the presence of God is the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Listen, I want you to know, we're not winging it up here on Sunday mornings. We put energy and passion and prayer and thought into our services. So so yes, we really do need to be doing our best to make sure that when we gather together on Sundays, that, that we do all we can to help each other enjoy God. But let me be clear, I cannot lead you into the presence of God. And there is no pastor And there is no evangelist and there is no minister of music and no choir and no quartet and no praise band and no church that can lead you into the presence of God. The only way that you can be led into the presence of God, the only way that you can draw near to God is through the Holy Spirit working on your behalf through the crucifixion and the resurrection of the risen Savior. That's how we're drawn into the presence of God. It is only through his spirit. That's what all of this has to do with you. For you to draw near, you need his spirit. For you to know that he's with you, you need his spirit. Someone might still say, this all sounds great now. Good stuff, but, but if I can't see Jesus, then how do I know that he's real? Well, when my grandmother was over at the church with the push mower cutting the grass, my grandfather was over at the general store working hard as one of the owners. It was the only general store in that area. He died before I was born. I never met him, never saw him, don't see him. But I know he's real. See, I can, I can look at my mom and my Uncle Arn who lives on the other side of Columbia, 
And I know that he was, he was a real man. I have the witnesses of, of many people. I have, you know, kind of cool little pictures like this one. So I, I know without a doubt that he was real. We live in a day and age where you know, cable TV shows and YouTube videos and, and blog posts, books, they will question, they will debate, they'll find secret undiscovered toenails, and they'll try to say, oh, Jesus, he's just a hoax, he's just a hallucination. But the reality is there is a lot of evidence affirmed by people who were not followers of Jesus that Jesus existed. They affirm his proclamations. They affirm his actions. They affirm his crucifixion. They even affirm his resurrection. And so that's why we pray that that God would give people eyes to see and ears to hear because the beauty of the gospel is true. The reality of God is real. And the salvation that can only be found in Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, is the greatest treasure anywhere. And when the gospel captures your heart, you'll start thinking and living like David. I fear no evil because, God, you're with me. That's what the gospel will do to your heart. Paul Reiser was born with a heart defect. But at his two-month checkup, things were good. The doctors were really encouraged with his growth and his progress. He was exceeding their expectations of where they thought he would be just after two months. But then three days later, Paul suddenly died. That was 20 years ago. Three years ago, his mom sat down and wrote some thoughts about what she's experienced. And this is what his mom, Vanitha Reiser, said. With Paul's death, my theology and my world were crumbling. God felt like a stranger to me. He couldn't be trusted. Nothing was safe. Ever been there? Are you there now? She goes on. Three weeks after Paul's death, she was out driving around. And this is what she says. Though I felt distant from God, I knew I needed him. I had been crying nonstop since Paul's death and felt an emptiness that wouldn't go away, even for a second. I didn't know how to cope. As I drove, I surrendered everything I knew to God. I wanted to trust him, and I relinquished my demand to understand it all. I just needed Jesus. I needed him to draw near to me, to comfort me, to show me himself. And this is what she said. And he did. In an instant, I was overcome with an incredible joy and love for my Savior. As God's presence filled my car, it was almost more than I could take in. Let me just say this. God's instant in your life may not be instant. It might be days. It might be weeks. For me, it was about a year before I could sit in the waiting room at the dentist and say, okay, God, the darkness is now lifting. So I don't know what your instant will be, but hers was a true 
instant. And I love what she says. I knew this sacred moment was going to change me. I felt the Lord's presence. Every joy or sorrow I had ever known paled in comparison. Indeed, one day in his courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Now here's the thing. There are many people who would rebuke her for her response to the death of her son. Some would mock her. Other people might say, well, pastors just use stories like that to to play on people's emotions. Well, I can tell you the only reason I used it is I just want you to know that Vanitha's a real woman and she has experienced devastating pain. She's experienced devastating sorrow. She has hurt. She has been angry. She has been afraid. But Vanitha is a woman who found her pronoun. And she knows that she is not alone. The Lord is her shepherd always and forever. So, for the glory of God, for the good of your family, for the good of your soul, I simply ask, is the Lord truly your shepherd? If not, then we plead with you, to run to him today. And if so, then be of good cheer. Be of great cheer. Because if the Lord is your shepherd, you are not alone. And you will never be alone.